Charles Spurgeon, the great English preacher and evangelist, was once uh, preaching on Isaiah chapter 9, and he said this. He said, how complex is the person of our Lord Jesus Christ? Almost in the same breath, the prophet calls him a child and a counselor, a son and the everlasting father. This is no contradiction and to us scarcely a paradox, but it is a mighty marvel that he who was an infant should at the same time be infinite. He who was the man of sorrows should also be God over all, blessed forever. And that he who is the divine trinity, always called the son, should nevertheless be correctly called the everlasting father. How forcibly this should remind us of the necessity of carefully studying and rightly understanding the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. We must not suppose that we shall understand him at a glance. A look will save the soul, but patient meditation alone can fill the mind with the knowledge of the Savior. Glorious mysteries are hidden in his person. He speaks to us in plainest language, and he manifests himself openly in our midst. But yet in his person itself, there is a height and depth with hu which human intellect fails to measure. When he has looked long and steadily, the devout observer perceives in his well-beloved beauties so rare and ravishing that he is lost in wonder. Continued contemplation conducts the soul by the power of the Holy Spirit into an elevation of delighted admiration, which the less thoughtful know nothing of. So deep is the mystery of the person of our Lord that he must reveal himself to us or we shall never know him. Um, I, I considered just reading Spurgeon's sermon instead of preaching my own, but then I was nervous that you'd never listen to me again and you'd just read Spurgeon and likely you'd be better off. This was a sermon that Spurgeon preached some time ago that is amazing in its scope and depth and breadth, just like Jesus. The, the complexity and the paradox at times of God should not shock us, right? Sometimes we stumble over the complexity of God himself. And it's got, we go, man, why can't it just be more simple? Well, I've been married now for 15 years and I've spent nearly every day of the last 15 years with my wife and I don't understand her hardly at all. How would I expect to understand God? In fact, I would argue that if God were so simple that you could understand him fully and easily, then he would not be much of a God at all. We follow Jesus, who is a mighty God and is also a wonderful counselor. He is the everlasting father, despite being the son of God. He is the prince of peace, despite his promise to bring the sword of justice. But while there is complexity to God, there is also a beautiful knowability. Isaiah tells us two really clear, really simple things about Jesus here in this passage. One, that he is everlasting and two, that he is fatherly towards us. We'll take them in order. First, that Jesus is everlasting. 
Um, I, I recently bought a, a, a crew neck sweatshirt that claimed to be a 10 year crew, right? The, the promise of the advertising is that this sweatshirt would last me 10 years. And honestly, it blew my mind. I, I didn't even look the, at the price. I just thought I have to own a sweatshirt that promises to last for 10 years. I've got children that haven't lasted that long yet, right? Like, I mean, this is a, this is a huge claim considering most of our clothes we wear for maybe a year or so. With they didn't promise is that it would still be in style 10 years from now, but that's never stopped me. So I, you know, it won't stop me this time. I wear things just whatever, right? So uh, I, I was, uh, I got the crew neck. I was wearing, it's very comfortable. It's very stylish. My wife loves it. Uh, and, and I was struck by the fact that the materials in this sweatshirt were so superior to my other sweatshirts. In fact, I, I put on another sweatshirt, a hoodie that I have, and it just felt thin and, and disgusting. Honestly, I threw it off myself because it just didn't compare to my new 10-year crew, right? Like the, the materials were sturdy. They were dependable. There was high quality craftsmanship. I could tell I turned the seams inside out and I checked the seams. That's what I do for all my clothes. I'm kind of a clothes guy. And, uh, and, and, and I, was, I was struck by how perfectly everything had been made right? There's a, there's a dependability, there's a stability, there's a quality to the kinds of things that last a long time, right? Like my prized possession, physical possession, my children for sure, but my, my prized possession is a hi-fi that I own a record player for you youngins. Um, that, that is a, it's a piece of furniture. I mean, it's huge, right? I bought it from the original owner when he, when he bought it in the sixties from 1964. So when he bought it, it was the same price as a car, right? Like, which was like $9 back then, right? I mean, who knows? But this is this sturdy piece of furniture that has lasted for 60 years now, right? There's a, there's a stability to those kinds of high quality, long lasting uh, items in our life, right? So the, the eternality of Jesus is actually really central to his identity. Jesus himself claims to be eternal in John chapter 8. He says, your father, talking to the Jews, he says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? I mean, Abraham has been dead for who knows how long. Probably somebody does, but a long time at this point. And they go, you're not 50. Uh, and you say, you've seen Abraham. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. Now the, the Jews understood what Jesus was saying there. Cause it says they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. They, the Jews understood exactly what Jesus just said, because the only person, the only thing in the world, in the Jewish world that ever called themselves, I am was God. So they knew that what Jesus was saying in this moment was, yeah, I was there long before Abraham. And, and, and despite the fact that the grammar is all bad, right? Like if Jesus was just saying, I'm super old and I just look good for my age, he would have said before Abraham was, I was, but he doesn't. He goes before Abraham was, I am basically saying, I'm God, I'm eternal. And this was one of the core uh, convictions, one of the core testimonies of Jesus about himself that, that ultimately caused the Jews to crucify him. 
Paul also talks about Jesus being eternal in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, 18. We use this passage a lot. It's the, kind of the core of our identity as a church. He says, he, Jesus, is the image, the icon of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So, uh, Jesus talked about his eternality. Paul talked about his eternality, that Jesus is everlasting. Now, both of these passages are somewhat theoretical, theological, academic. Hebrews actually puts some, put some uh, muscle and skin on this that makes it really, really practical. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16 says this, says, since then we have a great high priest. Now you got to understand the larger context of Hebrews. This is the author of Hebrews, which is not altogether clear to us who this is, um, is making an argument to the Jews to basically say, Jesus is the true and better everything. Starts with the angels, goes to the Melchizedek, then the priests and the temple and on and on and on throughout the book of Hebrews. And so now he is in this section arguing that Jesus is the greatest high priest. He's the true and better high priest. So he says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. He says this, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in times of need. Right, so Hebrews argues in conjunction with Paul and Jesus, basically saying that Jesus has been through everything and remains unchanged and unchangeable. In fact, uh, I wish I could quote this at greater length, but C.S. Lewis makes this really strong argument that in fact, nobody knows temptation as much as Jesus does because nobody has withstood temptation as long as he has. And his argument is basically the man or woman who withstands temptation longer knows the reality of that temptation better than uh, the person who gives in to temptation earlier because they've only experienced, say, five, 10 minutes or five, 10 weeks of temptation where Jesus endured his entire life, 33 years of temptation to sin, yet without it. So he's experienced a degree and a level and an intensity and a longevity of sin, uh, of temptation that none of us have, right? So the author of Hebrews makes this argument, like Jesus has endured everything, but in fact, more even than we have. So whatever temptation, whatever struggle, whatever, whatever trial, whatever pain that we have experienced, Jesus has experienced more of it. Right? Because not only did he live his 33 years of life, but he has been around creation. He made all things and has been in and through all things for all time. And so he has been walking with his creation through every epoch and every era, every war and every famine, every disease, every pandemic. Jesus was there for it. 
okay? And so the, he is dependable, he is stable, he is sturdy, he is made from quality material. He is, dare I say, better than my 10-year sweatshirt, right? Like he has been around forever. People change, people disappoint, people act out of character. Jesus is always himself. When I was younger and cool, uh, people used to say, been there, done that, right? And we were like, oh, dang, that's so cool, right? Like, been there, done that was like, I've done that thing. I've, I've been there. It's like a way to kind of brag about your accomplishments or your experience, right? Like somebody goes, oh, you know, I'm going to Disneyland. You'd be like, oh, been there, done that, <laughs> You know, and, and it was, it was really cool, uh, then, and it's not, it's clearly not now, but it was really cool. But Jesus genuinely has been there and done that, whatever it is, he has walked with you. He has walked with all of humanity through every moment in time. He has experienced it. He has walked with scores of people who have endured the pain and suffering you are enduring now. So we, we think about, I get people asking me all the time, like, who's a great counselor that I could go see? And I make references and, 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 and you know, recommendations to people all the time. And no matter what it is, I, I want to give someone who has good experience. Right, like I want to direct someone to go, hey, this isn't their first time walking with someone who's dealing with what you're dealing with. Right, like they've, they've walked through a, a thousand, walked with a thousand people who have dealt with depression or anxiety or, or marital issues or whatever it is you're dealing with because they will have gained that valuable wisdom and experience that comes with that so that they can use that to then help you. Jesus has literally been through all things and has walked alongside billions and billions of people who have endured what you are enduring. Nothing surprises or scares Jesus as a result of it. I remember some years ago, I was in El Salvador on a missions trip. And um, one night, uh, me and a couple of uh, brave buddies kind of walked out into the jungle by ourselves. And we were feeling pretty cool. We had bought machetes, machetes at the market. And, uh, and, and we were kind of hacking through the leaves and feeling pretty cool. And we got just out of sight of the kind of missionary compound. And, and I will just speak for myself. Uh, my friends were struck with fear right? Like, uh, I, I was fine, but they were terrified. Okay. We were all terrified and we we're walking through this jungle and it was like legit jungle jungle, like where you're hacking through the whole thing. And I just remember thinking like, I don't, it's dark. I don't know what's out here. Every noise, every rustle is definitely a Jaguar or something. And, and it was just absolutely terrifying. Right. And so we were out there for maybe 20, 30 minutes in the jungle and trying not to get lost. And all of a sudden we heard this rustling in the, in the bushes. And we're like, oh my gosh, it is a jaguar, right? And then uh, uh, somebody yelled and we're like, uh, 
hola, right? Because it's El Salvador. And so, uh, and we're like, oh no, we, I don't know who this person is, right? Like we're in a jungle, we've got machetes, but who knows what they have? And it was this terrifying moment. And then this guy comes out of the bushes and it's the security guard from the, from the missionary compound. And he, and he basically goes, hey dummies, what are you doing out here by yourself, right? And we went from immediately being terrified of this unknown jungle to, I can just speak for myself again, personally feeling very confident all of a sudden, and it might have been the machine gun that he had. It's hard to know, but I all of a sudden felt confident because I could look at this guy and know he knows what he's doing. He's strong. He knows how to navigate this and we'll be fine as long as he thinks we're cool. So as we're walking back, I heard all the same sounds. I saw all the same Jaguars. I saw all of it, but I would just look at him and go, okay, does he look afraid? He doesn't look afraid. I don't really know this guy, so I don't know his face, his afraid face, but he doesn't look afraid. And so I, I, every time I would have fear, I would look at him and I would know this guy knows what he's doing. He's been here. He's done that. He's got a machine gun. And so if he's not afraid, it's fine. I do this on flights too. Anytime I'm flying and there's turbulence, I just look at the flight attendants. Because the flight attendants are like, uh, hey guys, let's sit down. Then I know there's a problem. But if it, that, it, when I get a little nervous on a flight and, and they've got like four drinks and they're doing the, some dance down the aisle, I go, well, okay, we're probably fine, right? Jesus has been there. Jesus has done that. He is everlasting. There is not a situation in our lives that we cannot look to him and know that things will be okay. And so for us, in a time of deep uncertainty where everything is unprecedented, Jesus is his own precedent. The way he has always been is the way he will always be. So we can look at him and not be fearful, knowing that he is navigating us through this world and he's been here before. He has seen worse pandemics. He has been through worse quarantines. He has walked with people through worse marital difficulties. He has been the, by the side of people dealing with more crippling anxiety or more deep depression. He has walked with those people because he is everlasting. He has seen it all. And so when it gets hard for us, look at him and see that he never freaks out. He never overreacts because he is always in charge. Now, Jesus is everlasting and he is also fatherly. Now I know what you're thinking. It's not what the text says. It doesn't say he's everlastingly fatherly. It says he's the everlasting father. And what we know from the scriptures and from theology is that Jesus is not the father. He's the son. So how can it say he's the everlasting father if he's actually the son? Is this a contradiction in the scriptures? No, you'll be okay. Take a deep breath. Jesus is fatherly towards us. And here's how we figure this out. The key to understanding this passage and why, the, why Isaiah would call him the everlasting father is to first recognize that Isaiah 9 is not just like a little Advent verse plucked out of nowhere that is just useful for uh, these four sermons in Advent, but is in fact, this section is part of a much longer quote that begins on uh, uh, in, in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 12. So go back to, to Isaiah 8, 12. 
And, and the way these prophecies work in Isaiah, they're, they're called oracles or prophecies where God speaks through Isaiah and Isaiah writes it all down and what he's hearing from the Lord. Um, and, he, and he writes these things down. So he writes it down, says, starting in verse 11, says, for the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people saying, and then the quote begins. And the quote that starts here in 812 goes all the way through chapter nine. So this is one long quote. So we got to understand this section of everlasting father in context. And here's what we find. The quote says this, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. Interesting for this time. Uh, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall regard as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Hear this part. Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord. Now, what's that mean? If it's the Lord talking to Israel, why is the Lord saying, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob and I will hope in him. The Lord is saying about the Lord that he will hope in him and wait for him. It says, behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. Okay, so here's what's happening. The Lord of hosts is, is given this prophecy to Isaiah. The prophecy is this, the Lord talking about the Lord of hosts, the Lord talking about himself in the third person. Who is speaking to Isaiah here? Jesus. Jesus is talking to Isaiah here. Now, how do we know this? Well, one, it makes sense of the text itself, but two, we actually see it in, uh, in Hebrews chapter two. So turn to Hebrews chapter two, uh, verses 10 to 15. So the author of Hebrews, again, uh, is quotes a ton of the old Testament in the book of Hebrews to tie all of the old Testament back to Jesus. And so in Hebrews chapter two, verse 10, says this, for it was, it was fitting that he, who's he, class, it's always Jesus, I assume you said that on your couch, for whom and by whom all things exist, same language as Colossians 1 about Jesus, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. This is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, and he quotes multiple Old Testament passages. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your name. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. That's Isaiah 8. That's Isaiah 8, 16 that we just read. So the author of Hebrews talking about Jesus says that Jesus said, I and the children God has given me, which means a couple things. One, that the New Testament refers to Jesus as a father, right? Because a father is somebody who has children. So God has given children to Jesus. And that's what Isaiah 8 is talking about. Therefore, it is Jesus talking about himself, prophesying in the third person, right? We thought it was only 
only athletes and people that, that talked about themselves in the third person, right? Like, no, it's also Jesus. That's where it started. Jesus is the first person to talk about himself in the third person. And he's actually prophesying about himself in the third person, which is whack. Um, but listen, he's going, I am the one, like, I'm going to wait for the Lord. And the Lord has given me these children. I will hope in the Lord. This is Trinitarian language here that the Father and the Son and the Spirit, but here in this passage, the Father and the Son are one and distinct. That God the Son is speaking to Isaiah, telling him, listen, I trust the Father. I will wait for the Father. The Father has given me children and I will care for them, and, and they're entrusted to me. And so in that sense, I am fatherly towards them, but I am not the heavenly father. I trust the heavenly father, okay? So do we track there and get that? So when, when it comes down to, in Isaiah 9, saying that Jesus is our, our, our everlasting father, it's Jesus saying that about himself. If there's anybody not confused about who he is in the Trinity, it's Jesus. He understands that he is the everlasting son in the Trinity. But in this moment, he calls himself the everlasting father because he's talking about his relationship with us, his relationship with the people. And for us, he is our wonderful counselor. For us, he is our mighty God. For us, he is our everlasting father. For us, he is our prince of peace. So what's the point? Jesus acts fatherly towards us that we are his children in a, in a fatherly, child-like relational sense, right? So what does it mean for Jesus to be fatherly towards us? There are many things. I've chosen three because I'm a preacher and that's what we do. Provision, protection, and affection. First, provision. Jesus provides for us like a good father. 1 Timothy 6, 17 to 19 says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, love that word, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. And so uh, Paul here says, listen, um, tell the rich not to put their hopes in rich, but in their riches, but on what God provides for them, that God will richly provide for us everything to enjoy. Matthew 6, Jesus in very famous passage says, therefore, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Jesus will provide for us richly, right? God wants us to have everything. He wants us to thrive. He wants us to flourish. God wants us to have joy. God is not withholding good just for some, some sake of withholding good or for some ascetic kind of purpose. God wants us to have all of the rich blessings of his world. Jesus will provide those things for us. But I want us to notice 
that, that Jesus focuses on the emotion here, not specifically the need. He talks about their anxiety, right? Not about the needs themselves. He's kind of, he kind of goes, uh, you know, like there's flowers in the field. They got, they, they got what they need and the birds there, they got the, what they need. Why are you anxious? Why are you afraid? Why are you stressed out, right? Like often our emotions don't match the situation itself. There is an outsized emotional reaction as some describe it. The the situation is this, but our emotion is this. And I I think Jesus is going like, hey, what's that? What's going on there? What's going on with that outsized emotional reaction? What is it that you're believing about this situation that would make you respond that way? Jesus wants us to bring our anxiety to him so that he can calm our hearts, right? Like he he knows what you need and your anxiety means that you either don't believe he knows or it means you don't believe he cares or it means you don't believe he's powerful enough to do anything. Right? Like when, when we have anxiety about our future or anxiety about our some need, that, that's, not a, that's not just kind of a neutral like, well, it just is what it is. No, it's an active belief in something. Anxiety is always tied to, I think that whatever the, the risk is out here, whatever is against me out here is stronger than whatever is in here. Right, so every time my kids get hurt, they come to me, even though I can't take the pain away, but what I can do is I can add comfort and love and affection to the situation, right? Jesus is going, bring me your anxiety, bring me your fear, bring me all of those feelings about it. And I, I want to I address the heart because I'm going to take care of all this stuff. Don't worry, about, don't worry about the stuff. Don't worry about the food and the drink and the clothes. I got all that. Like I'm taking care of the animals. I'm going to take care of you. What I want to know is, why are you anxious? What don't you believe about me? Do you believe I don't care? Do you believe I don't know? Do you believe I can't? Where's that anxiety coming from? Because over and over and over, the Bible promises Jesus is going to provide for us. Jesus tells us himself. He almost just kind of, you know, kind of wipes away the need, right? Like he's like, you're anxious about food and clothes. I mean, whatever, man. Like, why? God knows what you need. Come to me. Bring me that anxiety. Because God's always going to provide for us. Second, Jesus protects us. And I think it's really interesting the way in which the Bible talks about the protection of Jesus. 2 Timothy 4.18 says, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. 2 Thessalonians 3, 2 and 3 says, For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. Amen. Not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Philippians 4, 7 says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What's interesting here is that the main theme of protection seems to be that the Lord will protect us from Satan and from sin and from evil. 
that there is an inherently spiritual element to all of what we really need protection from. The consistent message of the New Testament is that our real adversary is Satan and the true risk is the effects of sin. It is a decidedly spiritual worldview. Right? That's not looking for demons under every rock, but understands that the fundamental problem we have is one with evil and sin and Satan, not with people. Again, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but the powers and the principalities of this world. That is the worldview of the New Testament, but I wonder if that is how we primarily see the world today. Right? That's clearly how Paul and the writers of the New Testament, how Jesus saw the world, that the fundamental problem was spiritual, not primarily physical. Similar to the way in which the provision of God is primarily spiritual and the physical is kind of like, yeah, whatever, like, of course. But what you really need is to bring your heart to me. So too, Paul and Jesus go, the real problem is spiritual, not primarily physical. So I wonder today, do we see the root cause of our problems and danger to be spiritual? I think often not. And, and here's why I think that, because we often don't look to Jesus as the solution. We don't look for spiritual solutions. We look for physical solutions. We look for temporal solutions. So if our problem is primarily physical and temporal, so too will our solutions be. But if our problem is primarily spiritual and eternal, we look to Jesus. So I, I can see what it is you think is your primary problem. And I, and, I, and I would say the same thing for me. I can see what I think is my primary problem by the solutions I reach for. And so when the solutions we primarily reach for are physical and temporal, they are things that we can control to talk about this, to use kind of an illustration from the sermon last week, the levers we are pulling are primarily physical and temporal. That, that kind of bears witness to the fact that we think our primary problem is physical and temporal instead of being eternal and spiritual. But the promise of Jesus over and over and over, the promise of the New Testament is that our protection is against Satan and sin and evil, that he will guard our hearts and our minds, that he is faithful to guard against the evil one, that the Lord will rescue us from every evil deed and bring us safely into his heavenly kingdom, that that is our primary problem. And therefore, that is the primary promise of Jesus to be our solution, to protect us from our real enemy. Number three, affection. What it means for Jesus to be fatherly for us is affection, that Jesus loves us like a good father. I mean, um, one, of the, one of the ways in which um, uh, scholars will look at the New Testament and um, kind of recognize what the early church considered to be some of the most formative and important stories is to see which ones showed up in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And one of those stories is the story from Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. 
that will probably be familiar to many of you. It says, and they were bringing children to Jesus that he might touch them and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And here's the key piece. And he took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. There was an affection to the way in which Jesus dealt with these children. It says he took them in his arms, right? This wasn't like there were kids and he's like, okay, yeah, bopping them on the head from a distance or whatever, throwing some blessings and shooting some blessings at them from, from afar. But he takes them up into his lap, into his arms, hugs them and holds them and lays his hands on them and blesses them. Romans chapter 8, 38 and 39 says, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you ever think about the fact that Jesus just loves you? Do you ever think about that? I don't know, I don't know your dad. I don't know what that's like. And so when I tell you that Jesus is fatherly, I don't know what that makes you think. I know what makes me think. My dad was very affectionate. My dad loves me very much. And it's very obvious to me that my dad loves me. I don't ever, never once question that, right? Through arguments and through disagreement and through ups and downs of teenage years, all of it. I've never, ever for one moment doubted that my dad loved me. But I don't know if that's true for you. But here's what I know is that Jesus loves you the way your dad should have. Jesus loves you and is affectionate towards you in a way that your father should have been. And I hope was. He loves you. He just flat out loves you. He loves to be with you. He loves to be around you. He wants to be with you more. He enjoys you. Do you know that? Do you think about that? Do you treasure that truth? Because that's what the scriptures tell us. Early on in, in uh, mine and Emily's kind of parental life, we decided that there's a lot of ways that you can screw up your kids. And it's a question of how, not if, right? And so you got to pick and choose, right? And, and one of the things that we decided really early on was that if nothing else, if nothing else, our kids were going to know that we loved them. And so what that means for us is that we tell them that a lot. We have rituals every single night where we have something we tell. Each of us have a special thing we say with each one of our kids, and it's all about how much we love them. I hug and kiss my kids uh, a lot, right? Like I am, I'm, a, I'm a surprising hugger. I like to hug. So next time, bring it on, okay? Uh, but ever, even more so with my kids. I, I decided early on, especially with my daughters, I was going to kiss them so much that they didn't need any kisses from some stupid boy, okay? That I was going to give them enough kisses, satisfy that need for love and affection in them. Now, eventually, I want them to move out of my house. I get all that. But for now, I, I, I want them to be fulfilled with affection and love. I never want my kids to doubt my love for them. And you should never doubt Jesus's love for you. And not just because of the cross, 
I mean, last week we talked about praying and the adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. And I remember I, every, every day when I get to the thanksgiving section, I, I just, I'm, I kind of get stuck because it could just take forever. There are so many things that God has done for me. There are so many ways in which he has graciously provided for me so far above and beyond what I deserve. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. If you never get beyond that, but that gets deep in you, that's enough. That's all you'll ever need. And that's where I want to leave us today. With Jesus's undying, unchanging, everlasting fatherly love for you. He is not God the Father, but his love for us is fatherly. He protects us, provides for us, and is affectionate with us like a good father is. There is never a time in our lives where we don't need to be reminded of this. We are prone to, to act and think temporally and independently. Jesus calls himself our everlasting father in part to remind us that we are eternal beings living in an eternal world and that our time here on this fallen earth is only a fraction of our full selves. It is also to remind us that he is the one who can and will care for us. We are not left to ourselves like orphans. We are not ultimately dependent on the world around us to take care of us or to protect us. We have a father who is at once a wonderful counselor, exceedingly wise and caring. And our Father is a mighty God who is powerful and strong enough to save. That's Jesus. That's who we celebrate during this Advent season. And, and, I, and I would just extend to you, if you are listening today and you are not a Christian, you don't follow Jesus, I, I don't know that we could paint a more compelling portrait of who God is, of who Jesus is. I, I can't imagine a more compelling portrait portrait of a God than this one who is strong and powerful and yet our ever-present help in time of need, who is near to us, who is everlasting, who has walked with us, who has walked with all people throughout all time, who could provide for us the wisdom that Jesus can. And so I would invite you to at least begin, just take a next step towards Jesus. Now, I don't know what that is for you, but I would just invite you to take a next step. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We need you. You are our everlasting father. And, and we are blessed to have you as our everlasting father. God, we know that no matter what it is we're going through, you've seen it. You've been there and done that. You've experienced it. You've walked with those who have. And that you care for us. You'll protect us. You can protect us because you've been there. You will provide for us. And that you love us. And at the end of the day, there's nothing we need more than your love for us. So God, I pray that that is the, that is the peace that we never forget your deep and abiding, everlasting love and affection for us. You don't just love us because you have to, because you're God, but you actually love us and want to be with us. 
I pray that we would be with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching into a time of response to reflect on and respond to the work of the Spirit. While we recognize it's hard to capture that in a podcast, we'd still encourage you to take a moment. Consider what the Spirit might be saying to you in response to what you heard. For more resources and details about how to join us on Sundays, visit iconchurch.org. As we say each week, Christ is all and we are His.